0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SASTOC, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show, Uh, Stephen McIntyre, partner at Frontline Ventures. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Alex. Are you calling in from, uh, is it sunny Dublin? Sunny Dublin,
1: that's right. Now, pubs have just opened? Yeah, they opened last Monday, although I've got young kids now, so I only see a pub every once a year, maybe. I know the feeling. I,
0: I don't attend the local pubs, and I guess the only time that, that, that I do go to the pubs, especially the ones in Dublin, is when I'm at Sastock, which is yeah, not happening it. this year. But uh, <laughs> I've got a bit of FOMO having uh, uh, chatted with Des Trainer the other week at sastock Remote, about Grogan's reopening. That's the first part. That's a good pub. one,
1: that's, that's, that's a first good one, yeah.
0: Like to, yeah. But we're not talking about pubs today, Stephen, although we, we have started about it. Uh, they're opening in the UK uh, tomorrow, but uh, but um, we are going to talk about many things uh, today. And but first of all, I, I really want to um, uh, you know get to know and help the audience understand uh, who you are and then who is uh, Frontline Ventures.
1: Sure, well, I was born and raised in Ireland, uh, trained as an engineer. Spent about 10 years, all oh, in my 20s, really, uh, living in other countries. I went to, went to grad school in the U.S. when I was 21, and, uh, and really I've kind of loved the, the U.S. ever since, and that's been a big theme in my career since then. I'd love to have stayed in the U.S. actually. I was kind of kicked out. My visa expired, and, and then I, I went to the U.K., and then I started my career uh, as an engineer, and ended up traveling all over the world for for quite a few years, rolling out mobile phone networks. And I, I was living in Mexico and Portugal, UK. I was in Tunisia, Scandinavia, all over the place. And then uh, eventually went back to the states again. Did did an MBA there, and then that led me to Google. So I joined Google in two thousand and five, and that was really the first time that I experienced uh, blockbuster growth. Just. Uh, you know blowing the doors off every every quarter and like pretty much anybody else i think who was at google around that time it was it was a it was a career changer like it, it it was and the vast majority of that experience very good i was there for six and a half years now that i'm in the earlier stage world though like i look back and think sometimes it's uh it's not the best place to learn about business sometimes i mean the great thing about being at google at a time like that is that you see what can go right, if you get the big things right. And, um, but especially those few years, kind of mid 2000s before Facebook came on the scene and there was real competition and that kind of thing. Just learning about business there was like learning about gravity on the moon. You you just, things don't behave like that anywhere else. But anyway, it was an amazing experience. Then I went to to Twitter uh, in the very early days. So when Twitter was not doing, any revenue really outside the US. I was one of the first international employees. I became um, Vice President of EMEA I helped to build out the EMEA business from scratch there at Twitter. And then four years ago, I uh, went to Frontline Ventures uh, to, to get into venture. And uh, so basically, uh, kind of looking back on, on the Google Twitter experience, that was what led to some of the stuff that we're currently now doing in, in Frontline.
0: Being an engineer, working at Google, working at Twitter, then becoming a VC—did you always wanted to become a, a VC? How did that happen?
1: Uh, what's the story there? I was always curious about VC. I wouldn't say I wanted to be an investor; that wasn't a career ambition at a point. What I what I expected was that I'd end. I wanted to go to something smaller, and and I always enjoyed the earlier stages of growth. So, and Google and Twitter obviously became very big, uh, ultimately, but the times that I enjoyed most was probably when when both companies were smaller and so I was I was always going in that direction I was likely to go to a smaller company a VC back company I suppose I presumed it would be on the operating side but sort of doing a little bit of work I knew the to, the the founding partners of frontline pretty well and even when I was a twitter uh, you know we we interacted a lot um, and so uh, yeah it, it just became a, a natural step to to take. Frontline kind of does two things. We've got offices in London and Dublin, we, we do seed investing in Europe. Now we actually do uh, later stage investing in the US, which I can talk about. But uh, but when I joined first, it was seed investing in, in Europe.
0: Yeah, well, I, I mean, why, why don't we touch that? Because I, I know Frontline well and, uh, you know, been involved at, at, at SASOT conferences sort of over the years and uh, say the really uh, known Frontline as this uh, a very focused B2B sort of SaaS seed stage, you know, investor. Um, but now, as you say, you've you branched out and doing later stage investing in the US. Mm. Why, why not early stage investing in the US? Why later stage?
1: You know, curious about that. It's linked in large part to the experience that I talked about. A few minutes ago, there at, at Google and Twitter. So what I saw from the inside there, although I, I joined Google in, in the US and then moved back to Europe, I was I spent basically a decade at both those companies in Europe, and so I saw from the inside how uh, even the best US companies expanded nationally. And so, really, two things were most noticeable. There was that the opportunity of of the. Uh, uh, outside the US google at one point was getting 40% of its revenue from from europe middle east and africa it was it was really enormous and then this kind of the second part was just the avoidable mistakes that even the best companies make um, when they go outside so i had seen that firsthand i knew i knew it was true and i knew that despite having the best investors in the world in the us that those companies were still making those kind of mistakes and and so we had this conviction that um, no matter how good you are in the us that just the nature of growing up as a successful company in the US means that you will have certain blind spots when you go international and and that we might be well-placed being based in London and Dublin having operating experience in in house to to help out. So that was really the idea behind it. What what links the two sides of frontline, seed investing side and the growth investing side is it's B2B software and transatlantic because actually uh, even though the two sound quite different early stage and growth stage, Doing early stage in Europe, one of the things that you end up doing quite early is you end up helping companies, especially in B2B, expand to the U.S. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we're doing with the growth stage companies. So, in fact, there's quite a lot of similarity, even though, of course, the U.S. ones tend to be, you know, four or five years ahead in maturity terms.
0: What, what does a, a B2B SaaS startup need to, to have somebody like Frontline invest in them? What is your kind of thesis? What, what are you looking for?
1: The seed seed side or, or uh, growth oh, side. Okay. I, can, I can talk about both. Yeah. Yeah. Why not both? Yeah. I mean, I suppose what's what's in common across the two is we're we're looking for really ambitious founders with global aspirations, and um, we're uh, we invest across across B two B. So we're we're generous in that sense. And you know, usually we're looking for some sort of technical differentiation again. But I think in, in Europe, the the global the global aspiration part is not something that every founder has. And funnily enough, despite the success of of so many businesses, in the U.S. that's also true in the U.S. That uh, you can you can build a very big business, of course, just focus on the U.S. And n- not every every uh, every founder really wants to go that next step to I think fulfill the true global potential of the company now a crucial difference between the two funds is in seed in europe we lead uh, we lead at seed we're usually the first institutional investors in and uh, we'll be very hands-on helping in the product market fit stage of companies' development. We go on the board usually. Um, in, in the U.S., it's a very different structure where we're obviously a small player. We participate in rounds. We, we don't lead them. The, the rounds are usually led by top tier U.S. investors. And then we participate in a series B, C, or D. And then we just get very hands-on involved in helping them expand into Europe. And so um, one of the things we did was uh, we noticed that we were, we were missing data uh, when it came to advising these U.S. companies. Uh, uh, the advice that we were giving was based on, on real experience, our own personal experience, two of the partners uh, in Frontline have experience helping U.S. companies expand internationally, and then also all the interviews that we had done with you know, our former peers and friends and execs in the industry. But we were missing data. That data is kind of hard to come by. So anyway, we we went through a fairly laborious process over the last couple of months of of compiling um, a useful data set. And we analyzed how 175 companies have expanded from the US over the last decade. And, uh, and we published a report on that last week. So there's some, you know, there's some good stuff in there, which just makes it a little bit more quantitative in terms of the pattern that uh, these expansions tend to follow.
0: Yeah, I, I want to jump into that report in a, in a second. but One thing that you mentioned, and it's a sort of a commonality uh, in terms of um, a question that I often get uh, from VCs when they're coming to SASDOC or when they're coming to Europe, and they and they say, Alex, like, who are the exceptional founders, you know, out there, you know, in in Europe, right, uh, or at SASDOC today, right? And, and I find that a very difficult one to answer, just just because um, typically, I mean, say you you have like uh, we did last year, you know, three thousand attendees at Satsdoc. I mean, I, I don't know uh, most of them, first of all. I may know some of the companies. Um, if I ever speak to the founders, it's often very fleeting. You know, it can be yeah. like 10 minutes or so. And very difficult for me to kind of make that ju- judgment, are they exceptional or, or not? Because, I mean, I like everybody, but that's not a mark of, uh, you, you know, who, who is exceptional. So when, when I kind of get that asked ask that question, I, 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 I almost find it difficult to, to, to answer. How do you... Um, you, you know, uh, mark like or, or, or understand like, if this founder is exceptional or not? Because I guess initially within the process, you're viewing decks and maybe these are first time founders and, and like, what, what, is the, what, what is the triggers to say, like maybe this person has got something or do, can you only find that when you're having a conversation, when you're meeting them face to face? Is that when you know,
1: how do you know? That's a tough question to answer. Because I think if it were easy to kind of algorithmically solve that, it would have been done already. And it's it's just not. One thing that I did notice moving from being an operator to being a VC, one of the transferable skills I thought I would have would be ability to assess people. And we can see I've been leading teams for a long time and all that, and you're, you're, you're hiring people all the time and you're seeing them perform well. One thing that I noticed in VC was, was even that ability to assess, while I think it is transferable in the medium term, uh, I had to recalibrate what I was looking for when I when, when I moved into early stage investing, certainly, because the kind of skills that you're looking for in, let you know a, a vice president of a, a VP of sales at a public company, is just very, very different to what you're looking for in a, in, in a founder. The one clear difference that I noticed in the first while in seed investing was the importance of vision, that there are a lot of very, very capable operators who can build... Exceptional, very top of organizations who actually don't really have an unusual um, kind of vision of the future that's different to what they see around today. Whereas in early stage investing, uh, that was the thing that I noticed in the first year. If the founder you were talking to didn't have that clarity of vision, then there was sort of nothing else to grab onto. I'd say it's even a little bit different at times when you're looking at growth stage companies. Uh, And again, you know, I've been doing VC four years. So I want to be, I want to be humble about this. So people who have been doing it for decades and still don't have the answers to these things. But um, at growth stage companies, probably in order to get to that point, they needed to have that clarity of vision too. But then plenty of companies go awry at 10 million ARR, 20 million ARR. And, and there are some CEOs who I think s- seem to be able to scale themselves from that point because they want to build an organization underneath them um, that isn't as dependent So Don Bam, that's maybe the early stage organization was. So so probably I I need to recalibrate again when I'm assessing uh, growth stage founders. It's about company building at that point rather than product building. This report, the the 2020 Global Ambition report, Hmm. uh, you mentioned 170 companies surveyed, um, uh, all B2B SaaS? All B2B B2B software, not necessarily all SaaS, yeah.
0: What were some of the kind of key... Uh, findings here uh, that, that's, uh, I, I guess, going to be interesting uh, for the audience. And then we can uh, sort of link to where people can find the report.
1: Yeah, I'll pick out the things that I found surprising, because there's a lot of sort of maybe predictable stuff too. But uh, a few things that I found surprising, one on hiring, about almost half of companies landed in europe got their first senior hire wrong meaning they they left within two years and uh, so that's definitely higher than i expected that's a that's a higher failure rate than you would usually have at sea level in the us or even vp level at the us and it's particularly problematic when you're expanding into europe because you are know, eight or five time zones away from headquarters there may be no other senior employees around you get that first person wrong and that's a you may need to reboot the whole organization so that was that was a pretty big one um there are a number of reasons I think why that happens but anyway that's the fact a, a, a second thing that I thought was interesting was surprising to me despite the fact that i've I've talked to you know really dozens of companies that have done this about forty percent are expansions over the last 10 years have been led by product and engineering rather than by sales. And so I think that the normal narrative is that US companies come to Europe for customers and for revenue. And while, while that is true, uh, there's a large minority uh, that are coming for engineering and product. And actually that's increasing over time. I think I think what's gonna happen after COVID will, will um, maybe increase that further. But But it turns out there is quite a deep pool of product and engineering expertise now being built up in multiple cities around Europe. That that wasn't the case 10 years ago. Third one, the locations. So the cities that these companies, they're all VC backed, uh, high growth companies. The cities that they end up landing in, maybe it wasn't surprising to me. I mean, London, Dublin and Amsterdam are the three most common. Those three are becoming more popular uh, over time and classic network effects to do with cities, maybe that's not surprising. London has a good lead on its own. It's number one by a a good distance in B2B software. And um, I think it's maybe a little bit different in in, uh, when you look at say, just employment created over time. Sometimes the really, really big companies end up choosing uh, say at Dublin as well, or in Amsterdam as well. But anyway, as a first location, uh, L- London's number one, and then uh, another. I think really interesting thing that we found was the impact of Brexit, because I had never seen any data, at least not in our sector, about uh, you know what happened after the referendum. Did it affect the way that companies expanded? And you know, it turned out um, it turned out it did.
0: I mean, Dublin being um, you know, a relatively small city you know, compared to, to to some of the its european sort of competitors what is it that dublin has uh, to, to attract you, you know all these kind of tech giants and the scale ups and the, the venture backed uh, companies mm. i think apart, what, from
1: apart from brogans yeah uh, yeah you'd 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 fly 10 hours for brogans all right it, it, what dublin has has changed over over the last decade I would say the same is true for Amsterdam, more than what London has. And what what London has is the biggest city in Europe, all the obvious stuff, proximity to customers and just depth of talent and all those kinds of things, as well as English speaking and all that. Uh, Places like Dublin and Amsterdam just being smaller cities had to fight harder to get into uh, even the second tier. Uh, I think both countries used... 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, use corporate tax as a way to to give themselves an advantage against against bigger countries. In the last 10 years, uh, I would say that tax advantage has become, uh, it's become smaller and it's become less relevant. So I probably talked to 50 US CEOs a year who were thinking about international expansion Tax never comes up, li- literally never comes up. So it it that can't be a differentiator anymore. What has happened over the last ten years is just the, the depth of talent pools has become uh, more attractive. So it just simply the fact that Google located in in Dublin and then Facebook and then LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff just just generates sort of pool of talent. Some some of those brought up in the city, some of which was. Transfer it in. Same in Amsterdam. Amsterdam, uh, I think it happened a little bit later. But like Uber uh, locating there, Netflix locating there, that gave a reference cell to the next company coming over. They all attracted talent into the cities, uh, that then recirculate into the next kind of company. So that's what got them. That's what got them in there. Um, and it's it's those talent networks, I think, which uh make it harder for other cities that otherwise are very attractive like a you know paris or stockholm or berlin it it makes it harder for them to get into that first tier at least for u.s companies coming in
0: the report where can people uh, find it download it or uh, how do they access
1: it you you can go onto our website frontline.vc and you'll see the the two sides of frontline frontline C, and frontline x and if you just go into frontline x you'll you'll see um uh, you'll see a link to the the report. So the the the, um, the the Brexit thing that I mentioned was was pretty interesting too. So I suppose what I expected was that there'd be a bit of a drop off of expansions, probably to the UK, and then maybe it would it would it would come back up again, and maybe the, it wouldn't be the other countries in Europe wouldn't be affected that much. But what we actually saw was quite different to that. So at least in B two B software. We saw a pretty big drop-off in expansions after the referendum, so mid-2016, and it was like a 60% drop-off in, in, in new landings. It, it didn't just affect the UK, it affect, affected all of Europe. So every place in Europe was, was, uh, was impacted, and it pretty much stayed. I mean, it, it, it really didn't bounce back. And, but then the second part of the story was, we looked at what US companies that were already in Europe did. So were they affected? Because that would say more about what the conditions on the ground were really like. And they weren't affected at all. I mean, there was a a very minor sort of drop in new hiring in the UK immediately after the referendum, just people were kind of trying to figure out what was going on. But then um, all US companies in Europe just continued to hire like crazy. And and so what that says to me is one, like the conditions on the ground really didn't change. But the perception in the U.S. was that they had changed, that CEOs in the U.S. were most likely you know, from a distance reading headlines and, and got a bit spooked. And um, you know, the, the problem with that is that uh, the opportunity is still enormous, right? Uh, like 30% of, of, uh, of these companies' global revenue should be coming from Europe. And, and if you postpone that expansion uh, by, you know, by a year or two, you're foregoing quite a lot of revenue and, and you're opening the door to copycat competitors in in Europe. So um, yeah, that was a pretty interesting, uh, interesting finding.
0: What are you seeing uh, because of COVID this sort of impact, let's say uh, sort of in SaaS and again, maybe in, in the early stage, how are SaaS startups being impacted? Um, obviously we're seeing some winners coming uh, or benefiting from, mm. Covid, right? The Zooms and the Shopify's and uh, and so on, right? Uh, Yeah, benefiting not that they 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 ever wanted Covid to happen, but certainly there seems to be, um, you you know, uh, SaaS seems to be in general performing quite well despite this, you know, uh, very difficult and uncertain sort of market. But at that
1: early stage, you know, is is that still true? What are you seeing there? If you were to compare B two B SaaS startups to Startups and other sectors. Yeah, I think I think it's it's uh, for a, a lot of kind of obvious reasons. Though the business models are just more robust. But if you're an early stage company, you're, you're probably operating on no more than a year's cash runway. And so any company that's only got a year's cash runway or even eighteen months with a, a global recession ahead, you know, has got to be a bit worried. Uh, in the the growth stage uh, companies in the U.S. that we deal with just tend to, by the nature of the, of the kind of companies that we've gone after, like we've invested in TripActions and People.ai and ClearBank and Lattice, like they have strong balance sheets, they've raised a lot of money, they're category leaders, they can get through this stuff. Uh, for early stage companies, it's definitely a bit more a bit more dangerous. Um, what, what we were trying to think about was, especially for these U.S. companies expanding into Europe and elsewhere, we were trying to think about what are the likely medium or longer term impacts of COVID? So setting aside just the effect that a global recession has on, on everybody or uh, and kind of assuming that these companies will survive the, the short-term stuff, what changes in the way that a company uh, expands internationally and so these are guesses at this point because basically most companies that uh, uh, postponed things like international expansions right um, they just went into triage mode and they're they, if they were planning to go in q1 they they'll go in q4 instead so so we haven't seen um you know many examples of this yet but w- what i would expect to see is i'd expect to see more product and engineering led expansions because uh, a lot of companies had already been experimenting with distributed engineering workforces because of the Bay Area bottleneck and, and all that. Um, Stripe has a uh, it is multi hub model uh, where Seattle and Bay Area, Dublin and Singapore, and then I think they have this fifth hub in the, uh, for for the last few years, which is remote. Uh, and so many companies have been experimenting this with this for a while. and and a lot of companies are going to get more comfortable with that over the next six months or or longer so i would expect to see more product and engineering led expansions to europe Uh, and then on the the sales led expansions it kind of depends on what buyers do so if the reason why one of the big reasons for locating in london for example or a paris is you want to be close to or hamburgers, but you want to be close to large customers, especially if you're selling enterprise deals. If large customers become more comfortable buying remotely by video, then uh, that will probably have an impact on the way that companies expanded to Europe, where they locate, um, you know, the relative importance of hub offices versus local field offices. So, so yeah, I think that probably will, I think you'll end up with a bit of a, a, a mixing of the old enterprise field sales model and inside sales too you know inside sales teams tend to be very very numbers focused, um, but a bit transactional. they tend to hire kind of junior people straight out of college, that kind of stuff. field sales is like the opposite in almost all those dimensions. And I think you, you'll end up getting a mix of the two uh, and and there may be this development of a, a new kind of enterprise remote sales practice that ends up being done from hub offices like a, like a London or or Dublin or in Amsterdam, and maybe local field offices around Europe will, will sort of suffer. But that's a bit of a guess, but it yeah. could go that way.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm seeing, like, uh, for me, the conversations that I'm having, uh, and, and certainly because, you know, we're, we're still, you know, going through COVID and things w- may change, you know, in, in in the future, perceptions may change. Um, but uh, a lot of people that w- w- were reliant on flying to their customers, delivering, consultancy to their customers selling in person are now saying, like we're just doing all of this. Like, we, we won't go back to doing that in person. We won't be going back and, you know, getting on the plane and leaving the family, you know, and uh, and so on. We're going to just sit yeah. with remote. And it seems pretty common right now. Um, I don't know if, if people will start to kind of change, but again, we've all done it. And, you know, I, I would fly, and it's not long haul, but, you know, I would fly to Dublin for for one meeting right you know have that yeah. meeting in person but i, I could actually do that in zoom and that would take me a whole day you know out from the office i'm still working yeah. because you, know, yeah. you, have your call, you you have the phone etc so you're not losing a day's work but but still that the need to kind of be there and have that sales meeting in person perhaps that really is going to uh, dissipate
1: yeah it, it's it's hard to see that not being a permanent change because There are two self-reinforcing tailwinds. One is the economics of remote sales are just so far superior that there'll be a business imperative. And then secondly, just the personal tolls that that those kind of one day trips take on everybody. I think everybody's sort of woken up a little bit to that uh, and and we'll find it a little bit harder to go back. Now, having said that, I think the only thing against that is that sort of incumbents benefit from this kind of situation uh, where the relationships are already established. When you're new, when you're trying to break into a new region, you're trying to break into a new sector, your startup, whatever it is, there's no doubt that there is an an advantage to having a face-to-face meeting for building that first relationship. So that's the, maybe the only, the the only counterpoint there. I I wonder if partner sales plays a bigger, or smaller role in in a situation like that, where, uh, where a partner who already has those established relationships could then become an important additional channel for, for a startup that otherwise would find it a little bit harder and more time consuming to build them. The initial relationship
0: final question i know we, we, we can't say to the end of time always ask our, our guests before they leave how they stay healthy and sane um what's uh, what's your way
1: stay out of grogan's yeah um well i made a pretty big change to my morning rituals about four years ago when i left twitter i went to frontline And it was transformative. So I've always been a morning person, uh, and and because of that, he's always got up early. But I always used to go to work early, so I just thought it was the most productive time of my day. And and so I would get up, and even after I had young kids at the start, I'd still just I'd be gone by half past seven. And uh, I changed that to sort of getting up early exercising for an hour and then having breakfast with my kids in the morning it sounds like a small change but it was kind of a double whammy where I was getting exercise early in the day and then I was also the kind of habit was being reinforced by just getting the kind of bonus of breakfast with my kids and uh, that's been a life changer for me I have to say like the downside is you start work a little bit later um upside is you start work happy I mean it's great those emails can wait those slack messages absolutely can wait. I mean all you're doing is actually when I mean, you Changing a half an hour and my start date changes the way that my day goes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, Stephen, thanks so much for for being
0: a guest on the uh, SaaS Revolution show. Um, we'll hopefully see you uh, either at Grogan's or or at SASTOCK, uh, uh, probably SASTOCK 21. That's when we're we're back in, in Dublin. Um, and look forward to that.
1: Sounds good, Alex. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SAS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SAS Doc conferences around the world.